before we get started, I'm just going to give some explanation as to why we're ending here and um, also why it's important that you don't think that the, um, the pictures of Christ end with Solomon. Um, mainly it's an issue of the fact that if you, if you look at a Bible, um, I don't actually, there's one up here. If you look at a Bible, um, you'll, you'll notice something if you just kind of look at the Bible. You don't even have to read it. Just find if you've got a Bible with you. <clears throat> Go ahead and find the start of Matthew. This is totally not part of the message, so this is just a freebie. Not that I get paid. <laughs> okay, so find Matthew, right? You got Matthew? Everybody who wants to participate has Matthew? Now close your finger on the book. Now what do you notice about what's on the you know right side of your finger? Matthew and Matthew to Revelation is really small. And what do you notice about the other part? It's really big. And so we as Christians believe that this entire Bible, and some parts of the church even have a few more books, but we believe that this entire book has been inspired by God, that that we spoke, you know, we, we said in the creed today that the Holy Spirit spoke through prophets and apostles. So that those prophets and apostles, when the creed is talking about that, it's talking about people who wrote this book. It's not just talking about like prophet Jeremy and, uh, you know, apostle Jim, like not, not modern day prophets and apostles. The creed is talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit spoke to prophets and apostles. Those are the foundation of the church and those are built on Christ. And so the point of that being is that um, while we only spent 19 weeks, we didn't come close to even touching on any small percentage of the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. What we were trying to do, however, is give you an understanding uh, of how to read the Old Testament. That is, when you're reading the Old Testament, you're looking for pictures of Jesus. You're not just seeing Moses leading the, you know, the Israelites out of Egypt and thinking, wow, Moses is a great guy. When you're seeing Moses doing that, you're thinking about, you're looking for, you're asking for the Lord to open your eyes about the ways in which this particular story is teaching you something about Christ that isn't necessarily extremely clear in the Gospels. You always find something to connect it to, but it may be a, 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 a poetic image or it may be something about the way that the story unfolded that you weren't able to see. And so we believe that uh, the Bible itself, the entire scriptures, uh, are inspired and not one, not one part is more important than the, the next. And so uh, my brother has this very awesome joke that I love to steal from him. Due to recent developments in the church, some portions of scripture are getting little attention these days and the rest are wholly ignored. As in, it would be, you know, like Malachi would, or, you know, Zephaniah might get little attention, but it's actually the case that we're giving little attention to the major areas of scriptures and the mi more minor areas or the more subtle areas are, are pretty much, you know, completely done away with and wholesale ignored. So, you know, whenever you think, should I read the Old Testament or not, just put your finger in Matthew, look on one side or the other. Uh, there's a lot more space in the Old Testament. And we as Christians believe that is totally relevant and 
is totally meaningful for us. And the Old Testament unfolds and explains the new and the New Testament gives revelation on what was always there in the old. And so that's a very important thing for us to believe. Uh, the other thing that's not really part of this message is it's, and you know, had we ended this series earlier, it could have been a useful date, but today is July 1st and July 1st is halfway through the year. And now that you've got all these tools on how to read the Old Testament, if you aren't doing a Bible in a year program, um, I would really recommend thinking about one today. The reason being is July 1st is halfway through the year, exactly. And it if you start now uh, and don't finish, you can always start again in January. But in terms of the whole, you know, we have these little weird doctrines in the church. Like you have to start a Bible in a year program and you only have to do it in January. Well, the case is you don't have to start a Bible in a year program. You won't get into heaven if you do one. Um, but, you know, it's not about being saved, but it's about seeing Jesus where he is and he's in the entire scripture. And I would really encourage you to think about that Um it would be a great thing to do to revisit all of the old covenant stories now that you have a few more tools in your belt to be able to see him uh, once he shows up in that passage. So um, <clears throat> that's all no extra charge. And uh, I really hate I really hate advocating Bible in your program because I'm postmodern and I just feel it's too like you know the hipsters they're like it's too. It's too done before, you know, but it really is effective. I just to just to be honest before you and to let you know that pastors aren't perfect. Surprise. Uh, I'm actually only in May in my Bible in a year program. I'm at the end of May, but I'm in May on my Bible in a year program. I caught a really just boring patch of Job that I'm struggling with faith to believe is enjoyable. So, um, so yeah, it happens. But people get stuck in Bible in a year programs and they get lost and sometimes you it the train gets derailed. No worries. July 1st, it's exactly halfway through the year. You can think of it as January 1st. They even both start with J. Um it'd be a great thing to do now that you have more tools on how to see Christ in the Old Testament. So, with that in mind, um Let's pray and then get into the text. Father, we thank you for this series. We, I especially thank you for the benefit that it has brought to me in seeing you in new places and, and seeing uh, how time and time again you open my heart with beautiful things like you did uh, this week and last night. Uh, I just pray that you would captivate us with the language of your word, that you would help us understand, appreciate, and treasure the things that are in your word concerning your son, Jesus. God, we ask you that you would give us eyes to see and a heart to understand every single passage that speaks about him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um... Today we are covering Solomon, and this is, uh, it's a good place to end in terms of, you know, we have to end for necessity of time, but we, it's also a good place to end because Solomon is is kind of an easy one. Um, we're actually not going to go into Solomon's failures today because I think we've already seen through Saul and a number of others how to get through a failure 
of a person and see how it points to the fact that we need Christ all the more. Solomon doesn't end well. Um, and that is no surprise to us because we know he was a human uh, who was born in sin. And not only that, he lived righteously for a time, but then his heart drew him away to, um, you know, wicked things. And really early on in his career, uh, he, you know, he married a foreign daughter, a foreign king's daughter, and she basically began to tug his heart away. So young men, watch your heart. But uh, this morning is not about Solomon's failures. Rather, it's about understanding who Solomon is in the context of who David was and seeing how Solomon points forward to to Jesus in the successes of Solomon's reign. And as we see Solomon's success this morning, I'm going to, I'm going to slowly, but more and more throughout the message, move over to Jesus Christ, his present reign and the effect that it has for this world and for especially the church. So we're going to cover four things this morning. The promise to David, that is what God had said to David last week, we had left off. David had had been installed as king, but he he was anointed as king, but he wasn't actually sitting on the throne yet, and there were some encounters. And so David conquered Goliath, and we saw how that points forward to Jesus taking on the strong man of sin, sickness, and Satan, and defeating the power of the evil one, and being for us our champion. And David's victory becomes Israel's victory, so as Christ's victory for the church becomes our victory in the church. And so here we are seeing how Solomon is coming up, but Solomon comes as a response to a promise that God gives to David. Not only that, we're going to look at the transition of how we move from David to Solomon. I think there's some really important things there. And then we're going to look at Solomon's request, which was part of our reading this morning. And then uh, finally, Solomon's reign, which was the second part of our reading. So without further ado... Last week, we left off with David conquering Goliath. Now, David had been installed as king, and he's sitting on the throne. But David is a human, and he's going to die. And God comes to David through the prophet Nathan and basically says to David, you are, I've got a special purpose for you. You have a special place in my heart and in my plan for the people of Israel and what I'm doing on the earth, and I'm going to choose to establish your throne forever. And that's an amazing concept. David says to God, this is just totally blowing my mind. God communicates this by the, by the mouth of Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, 9 through 15. We're going to look at certain verses. 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. This is Yahweh speaking to David. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. So the idea here is, is Yahweh is saying, I've already been with you, but I'm going to continue to be with you to make you a great name. In verse 10, he says, I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any uh, them any more as formerly. Now, what's interesting here is in verse 9, God says to David, <clears throat> I have cut off all your enemies. But in verse, and, and he's talking to David, king of Israel, 
Israel in the land. But in verse 10, he says, I'm going to make a place for my people Israel. Now, what's what's confusing about that is, I mean, didn't Israel just come in the land and they were conquering people? This is speaking, in my opinion, of a future place for Israel. As in, God is saying, yes, my people, my nation of Israel is here, but there's going to be another people who I call by my name, and they are going to have a place, and I'm going to cut off their enemies from them. Here, David had just removed, in the verse prior, it said David had just had all of his enemies cut off before you. But in verse 10, it says that I, I will cause them to not be disturbed, nor will the wicked afflict them. But the previous verse had just said that all of David's enemies had already been cut off. So what is this talking about? This is pointing forward to a future more magnificent, more broad fulfillment of how God is going to install his people into a particular place. In verse 12 through 14, God begins to spell out the details of this promise. It says in verse 12, this is Nathan speaking the words of God to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So a few things to look at here. David's descendant will be human. It says in verse 12, uh, he will he will come forth from you. In other, in other uh, translations, the connotation of a, the fact that this son is going to be born in a bodily way, that is, he's going to come forth from David's line. That is, David's going to give birth to this king. Obviously, David's not giving birth. His wife is giving birth. But uh, David is going, from David's physical line, his human line, this king is going to be born. In verse 13, it says that this, this king is going to have a special purpose. David was desiring to build a house, a physical temple at this time. And Yahweh said it wasn't time to build the physical temple. And so he, but in fulfilling, in making this promise, Yahweh is not only saying there's going to be a fulfillment, David, for your desire to build a temple, but also that there's going to be a people who is the house. And that is a unique thought so far in the way that the tabernacle and the temple was established. In verse 13, he says, he, will, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what's, in, what's unique about that? His kingdom, this human person, his kingdom will be established forever. Okay? Now, you and I, we, we haven't been alive very long. I've been alive for 24 years. I have never met someone who is alive forever. Every single person that I have ever met has either died or is slowly dying. Um, what a terrible way to look at the world. But it's true. Every single person, every human that you've ever encountered is dying. Um that's a really like, you know, kind of maybe, I don't know, maybe Buddhist way to look at the world. It's all, you know, everything's just getting more simpler. You're taking steps toward death. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Buddhism, but uh, maybe maybe not Buddhist, but maybe nihilistic. It's, you know, I, I'm just going down to the grave. We're all headed towards that place. That's true. Everyone is dying, um, except for those who are currently being born. Those people are just waiting to be alive. But well, I mean, they are alive, but not fully alive. 
his kingdom will be established forever. This idea is they're not among the living, Heather. It's okay. It's just cute. I mean, she's, I'm, I'm digging. So his kingdom is going to be established forever. This is a unique person that Yahweh is promising to David. And David's hearing this and he's like totally overwhelmed. He, he doesn't know what to, what to say in response to this. And in verse 14, Yahweh says, not only is he going to have a throne that's established forever, there's going to be a special relationship between Yahweh and this king. Between Yahweh and Saul, he, he wanted Saul to be like a son, but Saul wasn't able to fulfill that desire. And David even sinned a few times as well. In, in very intense, very, very deep, serious sins. But this this one who is going to have his kingdom established forever is also going to have a special relationship. Yahweh is going to be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So instantly we're thinking about how this person is going to be like Adam. Yahweh was Adam's father. And so here this is, we're beginning to see the the prophetic nature of this promise to David. In verse 14, uh, the second half, it says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. What's interesting is Yahweh says, I'm going to punish this one, or I'm going to strike this one, with literally the strokes of the sons of men or the stripes of the sons of men. So we're thinking, okay, he's being punished for iniquity. In verse 15, it says, My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Kings who commit iniquity are removed from their place. That is the entire message of the Old Testament. When when you see Abraham outwitting the kings of uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt, when you see Jacob coming in and, and his shrewd dealings, when you see Joshua coming in to the land and destroying those five wicked kings, the whole entire point of the Old Testament's wars is to demonstrate that nations and kings who are unrighteous are removed. And so for Yahweh to be promising to David, when this king commits iniquity, I will not remove my loving kindness, but rather I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. We know something special and it's, it's highlighted because the next verse says that he's going to have a special and different relationship than what Saul had. It said, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So whatever type of iniquity this is, we know that it is one that cannot destroy this bond of loving kindness between this father and this son. And so to the informed Christian uh, hearer or believer, we see that this is clearly speaking of Christ, that this promise can only be be fulfilled by one who is sinless and perfect. And so this iniquity that he is punished with is not his own, but rather something as the representative of the nation as we learned last week, that David was the representative of the nation Israel when he killed Goliath, so too this king is going to be punished as a representative for his kingdom. 
So David hears this promise and he begins to set things in order. He he establishes the building materials for the temple. We're not going to have time to really cover all of what that is about. But this person that he raises up, he trains this person, Solomon. And before he, before David passes away, he gives Solomon a charge in 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 2, it says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> I'm going the way of all the earth where everyone's dying. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. So David instructed Solomon to be strong. This is, this is exactly what happened when Moses was telling to Joshua, Hey, Joshua, I'm passing the baton. You need to be strong and courageous. In verse 3, it says, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So Solomon's measure of ruling, the, the way that Solomon's reign was going to be evaluated, was going, it was going to be evaluated as it conformed to all of his ways, his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, and the law of Moses. So, so this is he's telling Solomon, Solomon, your reign is going to be measured by the scripture. And not only that, it's going to be measured by your understanding of the things that are in his scripture, not just the letter of the law, but also the spirit of, of the law and the way that God interacts with his people, highlighted in phrases like his ways and his testimonies. This is a high charge to Solomon. It's a charge that so far in our understanding of men, after the giving of the law of Moses, Paul says the law was given so that iniquity would or sins would be highlighted. And here, if, if Solomon is going to rule the land and have his reign evaluated by the scripture, we're, things are already looking bad for him being a very successful king. Verse 4, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon is supposed to not only follow everything that we just mentioned, but also to follow the first commandment from his heart, that his uh, that he would walk before the Lord in truth with all of his heart and with all of his soul. And so this is no small task for Solomon. He is, he is up against a very, a very difficult task. But Solomon hears this charge, and he doesn't neglect it, but rather he begins to establish his kingdom. There's a few political assassinations, and it's a really intriguing story how Solomon takes over. And, um, but he takes over and he begins to establish his house and put things in order. And he goes up and he goes to pray to the Lord and he, he's on his way to sacrifice. And God kind of cuts him off at the pass. He has a dream, which we read this morning in first Kings three, five through 15, this dream that he has, God appears to him in it and asks him what he would like for his kingdom. And Solomon totally nails it. He absolutely gets it right. In verse 7, Solomon's request, after thanking the Lord for a moment and saying, 
you know, thank you for establishing my father David's throne. He then begins to make his petition known to God with thanksgiving. He says in verse 7, Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. Instantly, we're seeing Solomon's doing great where Saul failed. He's beginning the start of his, uh, the start of his kingdom, start of his kingship, and he's instantly acknowledging the reason for him being king is to rule the people on loan. These are not Solomon's people. These are Yahweh's people that he has chosen, and Solomon is just a manager. So he says, great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant your an understanding heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. Not only does he get it right for the purpose of his his calling, that is, he's going to be king on behalf of Yahweh, but he also comes to God and he asks for God to be the source of his wisdom, and he totally succeeds where Adam had failed. Remember, Adam and Eve had reached out and stolen from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were reaching out and grasping wisdom on their own rather than having their wisdom given to them by God. In verse 12, Yahweh responds, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no no one like you uh, before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. In verse 13, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. Now remember, we're looking for a king who is going to have his throne established forever. And Yahweh just said, there's not going to be anyone like you all your days. It's clear Solomon's going to die. He's not going to be the fulfillment of David's promise of a king that is on a throne forever. Now this response is extravagant, but it still highlights the fact that we need one after Solomon to come up and to reign forever. So Solomon's reign is is a very successful reign, and this is where we begin to see the pictures and pointers to Christ become more and more and more concrete. His reign is a, a the most successful point in all of Israel's history, as in the nation of Israel had uh, subdued their enemies more under David and then further under Solomon than any time. David had kind of conquered the land and Solomon enriches the land and makes Israel the economic might of the ancient world at this time. And nations begin to come and stream to Solomon. And the writer of 1 Kings, he provides an excellent summary of this reign and its effect on the people and the land, not just about this person. It's not just about Solomon's reign. Solomon isn't reigning for the glory of Solomon, but also for what happens for the people of God. And this is where we see not only what happened for Solomon and Israel, but also for for Jesus and his people, the successful reign of Christ, bringing a blessing to the people of God. In verse 20 of 1 Kings 4, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. If you remember back to Abraham, the promise that God, one of the promises or one of a part of the promise that God gave to Abraham was that I will greatly multiply your seed 
in Genesis 22:17, as the sand which is on the seashore. And there was a prophecy this morning about the fact that the the sons of God are supposed to be lights in the world. That is the the sons and daughters of God, those who are reborn in in the church, those who are living righteously are to be like the stars of the heavens. That's another element of the promise. What are the stars of the heavens? They are the lights that fill the night sky. Jesus, before he left, he said, I am I am the light of the world. And then after he, as he's leaving, he says, you are now the light of the world. And so this, this fulfillment that happens, it's a partial fulfillment that God gives to, to Israel through Solomon. And he says to them, uh, you know, he says to Abraham, your, your seed, the line that comes forth from you is going to be like the sands of the seashore. But this is only a partial fulfillment. We also know that Abraham is supposed to be a father of many nations. And so Solomon is just a partial success in the fulfillment of the, of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. In verse 21, it says, describing Solomon's reign, it says, now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Just as Solomon has brought freedom to the entire land of Israel, the land of Canaan, um, he's brought economic prosperity. So more Christ has brought economic and spiritual blessings and riches to the people of God who are now no longer just in Israel, but rather are living throughout the entire earth. In Solomon's reign, it's it's highlighted again. It says, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and, and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. He has not only dominion of the land, but also the produce of the land and the things that are uh, on the land that is the beast of the field. Solomon here is a is basically what Adam was supposed to be, a, a king reigning over a piece of property for the benefit of God's purposes on the earth. In verse 25, it says, So Judah and Israel lived in safety, and I, I want you to remember this next phrase because it shows up again, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Just as Solomon had provided a place for nourishment for each individual family, Christ has become the nourishment for the spiritual family of God. That is, he, he is the vine and we are the branches. We obtain our life from abiding in the vine and staying connected to Christ. Not only that, but Solomon's reign has a mighty military presence. In verses 26 through 28, we read, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Those deputies provided for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table, each in his month, they left nothing lacking. They also brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Solomon had a temporary military conquest of the land, but after he moves on from the scene, Israel begins to be oppressed again. But in the church, 
through the work of Christ, he, Christ himself has provided for his people total and complete victory in which we never have to fear being reconquered by sin or sickness or Satan, but rather we are safe in the promises of God with the people of God. He has given his spirit through, through the day of Pentecost to his people. And not only that, but has also guaranteed and ensured our victory saying in Matthew 16, 18, that I will build and establish my called out people or my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. That is the gates of hell will not be able to prevent the church from taking territory. In verses 29 and 30, it says, now God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and the wisdom of, and all the wisdom of Egypt. We've been looking at, at Colossians 2, um, how Christ had displayed publicly the defeated powers and principalities that he, he demonstrated his victory. But before that, in that chapter in, in Colossians 2, in verses 2 and 3, and also verse 9, we see some amazing things about Jesus. Solomon just had wisdom, but Christ himself is wisdom incarnate. Paul says God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And now this is where the beauty and majesty of the incarnation takes a little flourish. It says that in Jesus, in him, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that is in Jesus Christ. This isn't just a, a categorical thing. This isn't just Jesus owns a, a database full of all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. Rather, this is saying Jesus Christ, is God, who is God, in him, in his body, are hidden all the, the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. And, and this is exactly Paul's explicit purpose. He reiterates it in verse 9. It says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is, that is a mystery and a wonder that is completely unfathomable. In Jesus Christ, the infinite God resides in, an, in a contained physical form, a, a limited physical body. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Not only is Christ himself wisdom incarnate, but also he was a great and mighty teacher. In 1 Kings 4, Verse 32, it says that Solomon also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. But Christ's teachings in his earthly ministry completely unfolded and gave meaning to the Old Testament and explained all of the purposes for which the, the prophets had, had written about. Not only was Jesus one of the greatest teachers, the greatest teacher to ever live on the earth, but he was also the greatest worship leader in that he has established the singing community on the earth. The church, the people of God, is the, the force of, of music on the earth, and God has established worship for his son through the church. Jesus Christ is the one who has established this community that is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Finally, it says, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Likewise, men from every tribe and tongue and nation are coming to and continue to come to hear wisdom from Jesus Christ 
and to receive instruction from his throne. The whole purpose of this series was that you would be able to learn how to see Christ in every phrase of the Old Testament, to understand the major points and the minor points, and not just stop there. My desire for you is that you would be able to read not only the Old Testament, but also the New, see how they interact and are intertwined, and see how Christ is the fulfillment of all prophecy. I don't think you should just read your Bible in a way that, you know, some days I do this, maybe you do it too, but you just, you approach the scriptures, it's especially easy to do in the Old Testament, and you just kind of check off your box for the day. You read, and you don't see him there, and you don't encounter him there. And I'm not trying to lay a burden on you, but rather say the Lord has so much more for you. And when you begin to remember phrases from certain places, the Lord will time and again pierce your heart with his word and open it up and allow Christ to come in. We're going to close this series with a prophecy from the book of Micah chapter 4, and, and I hope that you see how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, that he is the great, high, unmatched, unrivaled king, and that he is uh, greater than Solomon and greater than David and greater than all who have come before him. And he has the name above every other name so that everything is now under his feet. We're going to read in Micah and then we'll take communion. Micah 4, 1 through 4. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> and it, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, every, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and will render decisions <clears throat> for might for the mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for that wonderful, beautiful literary flourish that every house, every man in his house will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, first done through Solomon, and finally done through your son, and the provision in the spirit and in and in natural things as well that he has made for his people in the church. God, we ask you that you would cause us to be time and again in awe of your son, that we would see everything that he's done for us, and that we would acknowledge him as the current, present, reigning king of all the universe. God, we ask you that we would be like a fulfillment to this prophecy in Micah, that we would stream to your mountain, to hear from your mouth that your law would go forth from Zion and it would be established 
in our hearts and in this earth. God, we ask you that you would help us see how Jesus is the total fulfillment of all desires and all necessities for prophet, priest, and king. God, we ask you that you would make him magnificent in our hearts and that you would fill our minds with an understanding of your word, that you would give us the ability to hold on to tiny phrases and major themes, and that we would see him in every sentence in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.